Welcome everyone to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. I'm Dr. Catherine Dow, Senior Editor for the Room Now Women in Rheumatology Campaign. I wanna thank Bristol-Myers-Squibbs and the Be Now um, for sponsoring this important campaign. Our first Tuesday Night Rheumatology was straddling career versus family last week. We have reviewed how to negotiate contracts and tonight I will be moderating a panel discussion on academia versus private practice. This is where we will address how to choose between private practice versus academic medicine, how to advance in your career, strategies for self-promotion, networking, finding a mentor, and engaging in research. If you have any questions, please put it in the Q&A. You're also able to view these videos, including tonight's video, on roomnow.com or on YouTube. So let's go ahead and get started. With me tonight are some incredibly successful women who have contributed to and are shaping the field of rheumatologies. Ladies, will you introduce yourselves? Let's start with Dr. Grace White, um, a WARES president. So please tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and if you're in academics or private practice. Thanks, uh, Dr. Dale. So I am uh, Dr. Grace Wright. I am in New York City, Midtown Manhattan. Um, and I actually did both simultaneously, academia and private practice for 18 years. And I'm now solely and fully in private practice in Manhattan. Thank you. And then Dr. Reddy, we're, we're gonna do the private practice round first and then I'm gonna introduce the academics. Dr. So my name is Priya Reddy. I practice in Riverview, Florida. That's the greater Tampa Bay area of Florida. I did a very brief stint in academics after my fellowship training that for about three years and have been in private practice. And I'm lucky enough that I get to still teach residents as a uh, clinic site director and uh, rheumatology um, director for that uh, internal medicine residency. And Dr. Danila? Uh, Hello, I am Mayo Danila. I'm a rheumatologist in academia at uh, UAB in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I've been here basically all my life as a rheumatologist. And Dr. Desai. Hello, Sheetal Desai. I am an academic rheumatologist in Orange County. I'm at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm currently chief of rheumatology here. Thank you. So Dr. Wright, I'm gonna start with you. Could you tell us how you got to where you are now in your career? I mean, what made you decide to do what you do and with private practice? How, how did you get to where you are? That's a loaded question, but thanks for starting me there. Um, so it's actually when I was a fellow sort of looking around, I was really sort of very committed to uh, clinical care, but also keeping my head and thinking about strategies. And so try to do both with academia and um, private practice, which was a model that NYU uh, allowed us to have. That was sort of the model. Um, but I realized that for me, the efficiency in managing the stream of patients in private practice, the business aspect of it really appealed me to make something that was efficient, that could give very um, um, sort of, you know, high output um, and very effective therapies. And so for me, doing something in which I could be nimble, I could make decisions and I could pivot if I needed to, that was important. I also was, you know, mother of one, a second one as a chief, and a third one coming on as a young attending. And it allowed me to have that flexibility to be the soccer mom, be on the soccer board, lecture to the to the to the fellows, um, and every once in a while, you know, fly around the world and do something interesting. So it for me was the flexibility that allowed me to uh, really fulfill all of the yearnings that I had to, to be a thinker, to be a strategist, and to be a clinical care deliverer and be a mom, right? So th those are all the things that had to be fulfilled. And that was my path to becoming this. There is a whole other story to forming a nonprofit, to promoting uh, mentoring amongst the fellows in New York City and extending that beyond, and then mentoring and forming a group of, of both men and women to be a supportive community. And that was the, fo the formation of the Association of Women in Rheumatology. But that was really just part of that journey um, of starting off with, wanting to do it differently, wanting to do it better, and wanting to be more inclusive so that everybody could potentially have a seat at that table. I so think the short a lot version of the long story, right? I think a lot of our um, you know, fellows right now are looking to decide, are they gonna stay in private practice or academics? And you know, I think that you can have it all. I mean, Dr. Reddy had written a blog today about how she was able to lead in the private world. Um, could you share with us like, how you decided to go into private practice? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I, I think I had the, the bug that we all have during our fellowship training where you really only see academics when you're in, in training. That's really the environment that you know. Um, you know, other than maybe rotations in a private clinic, which I didn't have really during my fellowship training, but more so during internal medicine, I really didn't know how even an outpatient clinic operates. Because when you think about internal medicine residency training, it's all in, it's predominantly in the hospital. Um, so when I completed my fellowship, I, I had um, my first child, Siddharth, that my son was born the second year of my fellowship. Um, actually the middle of the first year, it was so long ago, I don't remember, but, um, it was very challenging. And I thought, how can I have this amazing research teaching clinical career and be this super academician, you know, with a child and I'm already struggling, you know, in, in my first year with managing a, a nanny and then the nanny's son who brings her to, I mean, it was just insanity. And I was like, how does anyone do it? And the one um, woman who was part-time on faculty there, uh, wonderful uh, Catherine Dugason uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle said, Priya, you know, I live here, right? Like my family's here. I have a network. And I realized the importance of having that safety net. So I moved to Florida and again, was looking for an academic position, which at that time, what was available in the area was uh, at the University of South Florida, um, it, it wasn't the same University of Washington, huge program it was really more clinical. And after about a year, of, actually about two and a half years of doing that, my son, I, I was spending, I wasn't spending enough time with him. I was commuting an hour and a half, almost each way to get there. And I thought that's valuable time with my family. Um, you know, I'm mainly teaching. I wasn't really as involved in research as I thought I would be um, at the program. And I said, well, let me see if there's another way. And um, that's when I pivoted and decided, let's look at private practice. And I actually started on my own. I found a, an office that was literally 10 minutes from my house and opened up that practice in 2010. And very shortly thereafter, because I knew I wanted more kids within four months had uh, found out that I was pregnant with my baby, uh, my my little one, uh, Shreya, who's like a twin of the practice is what I call her. She and the practice are twins. Well, yeah. And I mean, I'm hearing it loud and clear. Private practice, you have flexibility, you have control. But let's take a look on the academic side, because there are people who love academics. I mean, I was in private practice and now I'm actually transitioning to academics and I do some clinical research and I love to teach. So I'm going to hold off on Dr. Danila because she has a very unique perspective on this, but I want to ask Dr. Desai, what made you go into academics? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I knew from a young age that I loved teaching. Um, so I ended up getting a master's in teaching and I just felt like the best way to be able to continue to teach in medicine is to stay academic. Mm -hmm. So just like Priya said, that's all we know. And it's true all throughout medical school, residency, fellowship, you're only in an academic setting. And just to make my husband happy, I did interview at Kaiser and at private practice opportunities when I was looking for a job, but I just found that it didn't offer the teaching opportunities, um, the research opportunities that I wanted. So I ended up staying in academia, but my husband really wanted me to go out. And I think twofold. He wanted me to go out and explore something private practice and he wanted me to make more money. And I just told him, listen, uh, there's no point in me making more money. If you're going to get used to that, it's better you get used to lower incomes than higher incomes. So I just ended up staying academic, was really happy to stay academic. I know there are pluses and minuses of every institution and every practice setting you look at, but they all vary a lot. So I heard a common theme of flexibility. And I would say, I feel like academics gives me a lot of flexibility. You know, in the early years of academia, I was very focused on just clinical care because I was trying to learn rheumatology and get more comfortable. And then as my kids got a little older, I added education in. And then as they're now kind of going off to college and entering high school, I'm now doing more and more clinical research. So I feel like 
I haven't had the pressure of doing research, education, and clinical care simultaneously all the time. I have found that I can focus on one or two areas at a time, depending on what I'm going through in my life, right? And what I want actually in a home environment. And it's funny, you must have, you must have to have some kind of a love of business. And that was something I always had a fear of. So I think Grace and Priya, they're fabulous when it comes to being business-minded. And even though I'm Indian, I think I lacked that business gene, haggling <laughs> gene quite a bit. So for I me, won't tell anyone. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm terrible, <laughs> right? The first price they give me when we travel abroad, I take it. And my husband just looks at me like, oh my God, I'm never going to get him enough money. But <laughs> no, I mean, I think for me, being in an institution felt like it took the pressure of the business side of medicine away. And I can focus on the things I felt like I was stronger at. But so protected time. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Flexibility yeah. for me, I thought I got amazing flexibility in academia. Right. And money is overrated, right? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. But yes, I feel like my financial mind has come, has grown over the years. But yes. So, okay, Dr. Danila, now you have a very unique perspective because you immigrated here and became a very successful researcher. Um, and I know that the that there are several fellows that I've worked with where you know they're from another country and they face very unique challenges. Tell us your story because I, I mean, when I like listen to your story, I just absolutely fell in love with you and hence you're here <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Uh, I really enjoy our dinner too and the pictures we've taken. So, um, so yes, I, I do have a different perspective because I was born in Romania. Um, so, you know, I didn't, I did medical school training there. And even as a medical student there, I wanted to be an academic in academic medicine. Um, you know, I finished medical school and there the system is a little bit different. You actually apply for positions and there is, there is a test to actually make into the position. It's not, uh, only a CV or an interview kind of process, and then the sort of the promotion uh, track that uh, we know happens in the United States. So, um, you know, after medical school, um, because for medical school, I went, uh, I went to medical school to do actually research. This is what I was passionate about. And, you know, I was told back then, um, look, if you are a physician, um, you are going, going to have different opportunities opening up to you. So I was like, okay, I, I can do this. I can become a physician. And I, I, I did a few years later. And then once I became a physician, I was like, well, I, I, I really wanted to do research. So I, I, I decided that to, to do that very well, I would have to leave my home country. So I left Romania, I went to Canada, did an advanced degree in microbiology uh, because I wanted to work for WHO at the time. And um, uh, then I kind of come back into medicine because I started missing the patient care aspect of it, the, the interactions with people. And just, you know, I, I felt that while I really loved uh, the, the research part, it was not enough for me. Um, so I moved to the States um, and uh, started into residency and then followed that with, uh, with fellowship. And I moved to the States as a J-1 visa holder. Um, and, you know, for, um, for the uh, foreigners who are uh, listening on, uh, everyone knows that J-1 visa is not the right visa to come into the United States on as a physician. Um, so I had a little bit of more complicated path to, um, to getting a job as a waiver position at UAB. And then a few years later, after I uh, fulfilled the home, the, the waiver, uh, the three-year uh, waiver job, I was able to actually start my research career, got a K award uh, a year later, and then everything is history, pretty much. I, I just don't know anything except what I currently do. And I, I mean, to me, I made the choice to be an academic, but in a lot of ways, you know, the, the visa situation, everything kind of, if I wanted to 
um, uh, go outside academia right then probably would, you know, would have been a little bit of a pain because, you know, I, I have a husband and during fellowship, I, um, I, 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 I had my first child. So it would have been really difficult to, to transport all these people in an area that, um, that uh, may, may not have been conducive for a career for, um, for my partner. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad I chose it. I think, you know, I, I love my job. I think, you know, you work flexible hours. If I feel like working at 5 a.m. in the morning, no one really, I don't have to wait for a patient who comes in, to come in to work, uh, to, to work because a lot of what I do beyond clinical care is, is research and education. And I also love that, you know, it sort of keeps you young. You have all these interactions with, with the younger people. And I was just talking to uh, somebody today that I still think I'm the same age I was when I graduated fellowship a few years ago. Um, so uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it, I think it's really fulfilling field to be in. And um, I, I just enjoy it. And I mean, that begs the question, because, you know, like, I think there are some immigrants who feel that the only way they can get a job in the United States is actually doing research. And I just don't know if that is true. I mean, from your perspective, do you think that there's more um, immigrants who do go into research if they're a medical doctor? Um, no, I think it's actually so it's actually harder to do research as an international uh, medical graduate. And the reason for that is that to actually um, uh, the to, to, to in the past to get funding for your research, you have to be a permanent resident. And to do that, um, you know, it, there's there are st several steps to, to, to get there. So I don't think it's easier. Uh, I think it's actually harder because because of that. And I think it's, uh, you know, there are ways now that we're, we're trying to work to make it easier for people. And for example, the Rheumatology Research Foundation just uh, recently opened their, uh, opened the, grant, the award process to, um, to people that do not have U.S. citizenships so, or permanent residency. So that I think will, will help. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's from, from my standpoint. I don't know what uh, Shital, uh, what, what do you think? Uh, for immigrants, I would actually agree with you. So first of all, I would say my husband would high five you because he says immigrants always get it done. I mean, your path was not an easy path. It was definitely an arduous path, um, but you got to where you wanted to be. I would have to agree with you when it comes to education, being around trainees and being around fellows and, and you know, feeling like you have to be up to date. And I finished rounds before I started this. And there's always things that we don't know that I feel like because we get so many different trainees asking us questions. It's a lot of fun to stay up to date with things. I would have to concur with you with that. Um, I love the RRF opening it up. I don't think I was aware of that because I have a faculty member who does carry a visa and that has been her hardest thing. She loves clinical research, but has been, you know, it's been difficult for her to actually get opportunities and to get funding for her to continue the research. So actually, thank you for letting me know about that. I'm going to tell her to look into RRF. That is wonderful. So right. we had asked a survey question, and I don't know, maybe if you haven't answered the survey questions, you can go on roomnow.com. And there's a survey question about academia and um, private practice about what you value most. Shannon, would you mind sharing the first screen so that our audience can see um, thus far, we have over 100 responses, and it's the very first question So you could share right now. As we wait for that to come up, Catherine, it just dawned on me looking at the panel. I am from Jamaica, so I identify as Jamaican-American um, and came as an immigrant to go to college and then from there. And I know that we all have different ancestries, so it's really fascinating that with that varied background, we've all chosen different paths. Right. Absolutely. And finding the thing that's right for you is, I think, is just the key okay. thing. What what is it that's going to get you up every morning and get you excited? Yeah. So this is a great survey. So this is our first survey. Um, so a little bit over half of the respondents were men. Um, and then 
we asked them whether or not they're in private practice versus academia um, or in fellowship. So the majority of people, about almost 70% of people were in private practice, not surprisingly. About um, almost a third is in, uh, they're in academics. And then we had about 2.4% who are still in fellowship. So Shannon, show the next slide. And this is what they value most in choosing a workplace. So a lot of people really want lifestyle. You know, um, Grace and Priya, you had talked about flexibility. So it's not surprising, but if you were to look at, you know, women in particular, I mean, half of us really focused on the ability to, you know, be there for our children, the ability to, you know, have a life outside of, you know, intense um, work. So does any of this surprise you at all with the survey respondents here? No, because I think each one of us as a panelist reported lifestyle as a factor in choosing what we chose. And, um, you know, like you said, children or a spouse, you know, I can't go somewhere and be somewhere where my uh, spouse doesn't have a job. So I think that this is really spot on that lifestyle really looms large uh, in, in decision making. And if you notice, women don't care as much about income. In fact, they will sacrifice some income in order to accept the lifestyle. Um, I've done that. You know, I, I was working part time and I accepted pretty much a fellow salary <laughs> with Jack Cush um, right after fellowship. And I maintained that for a few years because he, number one, he was a great boss. Number two, I, I still feel like I'm learning from him. And number three is he offered me flexibility because I could be home with my kids. I could attend a dance recital. I could attend a soccer game. So for me at that moment in time, money wasn't as important as the time that I got to spend with my children. The, the thing though, that's a little confounding for me is that I think of opening a private practice as a single solo practitioner in New York City. They all told me I was crazy, which I gladly acknowledge had to be true. But, you know, in that sort of competitive environment, it gave me the opportunity to create a practice that afforded me a lifestyle. So, you know, I think sometimes there's a little bit of um, a fusion between how opportunity affords us the ability to do what we then want to do. Um, it wasn't the lifestyle that gave me the opportunity. So I think it varies depending on um, how you want to do what you want to do, but it's possible sometimes to find that um, that slice, it allows you to have the opportunity. Um, and yes, we make sacrifices. Had I worked double the number of hours, then, you know, incomes would have gone up, but I, I wouldn't have seen any of my kids. I just married my first child this past weekend. Wouldn't have been there for that. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, these are the decisions, the choices that we make. Congratulations. Thank you. All right, Shannon, let's take off that slide for a moment here. And I want to talk about something else that's really important. Um, and it's about self-promotion. Oh, yes, Dr. Desai, sorry. Only because I see a Q&A and it was directed, I guess there's two, it was directed against myself and Danila. Did you want us to answer that now or wait? Um, sure, we can go ahead and answer it. I had totally not seen it. Go ahead, please. Oh, go ahead. So we don't like toggle back and forth too much. It just says it's from Rachel and it says, doctors designed Danila. Have you seen any changes in your academic models in terms of expectations um, that like the number of patients per day that resembles more like private practice? And so I just wanted to say that, you know, I've now been at UCI about 15 years. And in the beginning, there was no RVUs. I just had a set number of half days. I had to do clinic and I would see patients. And it is true over the years private, uh, sorry, academia feels the same pressures in some ways where they have to make ends meet and they have to be financially and fiscally responsible. So there's been more pressure in academia to see a certain number of patients um, every day kind of throughout the year. So I would agree with you. There definitely is more pressure. I'll see what Daniela thinks, but I would say there's also opportunities that academia affords to get time buy down. So if you're a program director or if you're doing research and you bring in funds, or if you're a clinical chief, there are ways that you can go ahead and decrease your clinical requirement to see patients um, so you can kind of get the balance that you want. And then I'll pass it on to you. 
Yeah, sure. So I, I agree with you. Uh, I think um, the, the, there are definite pressures that I see on my colleagues that are um, uh, clinician educators compared to you know, people like me, who's a, who I am a clinician investigator. Um, and when I started uh, at UAB, I actually started on a pure work RVU model as a J-1 visa waiver person. I was one of the first few people that's like 15 years ago, I think almost now, um, that was um, uh, compensated on a work RVU based model. And that with time, everyone um, sort of caught the same wagon of the work RVU pressures. Um, I think uh, the, the, you know, while that's the case, um, there is, there are some benefits of practicing in, in that type of way, um, because, you know, we, uh, a lot of what, it, it's easier to collaborate in a, in a large medical institution like UAB, there's a lot of, um, you know, specialists that are just, you, you can pick up the phone and call them and you, you, you get your answer pretty quick. Um, so there is time that I think otherwise one would spend and having not practiced in private practice, please forgive me. Um, but, you know, if you were to try to get the same response, it may take a little longer in, in private practice just because, um, you know, you may not know the right the exact person for that particular unusual disease. Um, I do think that, as you uh, mentioned, Dr. Desai, there is ways to buy down, uh, buy down time. Uh, and there is very strong recognition now that uh, there is, uh, you know, we, that there's been a lot of discussion about burnout, about, you know, just working too much for too little, if you will, uh, that it doesn't really, um, it's not conducive to, to wellness, right? So um, I, I think um, that, uh, you know, there's a way to negotiate um, at any time in somebody's career, um, ways to, to pay, get down time, uh, buy out time. But there's also like, you know, at, at um, our institution, um, there's different tracks that you can have. So you can have the clinical, track, you can have, you know, like the research investigator track or, you know, tenor uh, promotions and tenure. So there's multiple tracks and some of them, like the, if you do like plain clinical track is about RVUs, they'll give you a base salary. If you make above that, then they'll give you bonuses too. So, so it really does depend on the track, but you're right. There is buy down, there is some negotiation because most of all, most people think that in academics, you don't have the ability to negotiate. But actually, I don't think that that's quite true. I think that you might be able to ask for certain things. Um, but there's another question here that's from our um, Q&A is about part-time work. Um, so I'm going to ask like our private practice individuals what they think yeah. about part-time work, because, you know, I've done part-time. I don't know if you've worked part-time or have employees or, you know, partners who have worked part-time. Yeah, and that was, you know, I'm thinking through this saying the the very, and I sort of lived in both worlds at the same time. So I saw the negotiation in the academic side and then on the clinical side. And really it's about understanding what is it that I need and then going and negotiating for that. And as physicians often, we sort of forget it. I know you've covered this, that, that we don't have negotiating power, but you really have to walk in there saying, this is really what I'm, I'm trying to get. What we saw sort of emerge even in private practice were these shared models where there were two women, and this is not just within healthcare, this was in other industrial sectors as well, which shared the time. So it's a 50-50 split, but guess what? It becomes a 60-60. So you end up with a much more productive product when you have these two part-timers who are both doing a little bit more than half. Um, and so that model has worked really well. And as I always say, the babies grow up. And then you can do a 75-25. So it's a sort of thing, if you go in with a solution um, like that, it's much more palatable. And it's something that, you know, an employer can say, well, I can fill this spot that needs a full-time, you know, a, a one FTE with, with 2.6 FTEs. Um, and again, when this first started, it was considered the craziest thing. Like, what do you mean? You're going to share the slot. 
Um, I do mornings, you do afternoons. I do three days, you do the other three. There are all of these different ways to make it work. And so I think it's not, for me, when I look at flexibility as a core um, ask, it's about finding that flexibility in the domain in which I wish to live my, my healthcare experience. So do I wanna be in academics and be an investigator or a researcher or educator? Do I wanna do predominantly clinical care? It's the same questions we have to answer. We all have to negotiate for what we need. We all have to find the split in time between our, our work or self-care and our other stuff, family and friends and you know, those other people that we forget about half of the time, right? Um, it's important to do that. But so I think it's not so much the tug of war of academia or clinical practice. It's figuring out where you're going to thrive and excel and then negotiating for all of the components that you need. And that makes it meaningful, you know? And so um, it, it, it just ends up working, but it's possible to do it. Um, and I think that we just have to find, find the space and the place. I know that, you know, I had the advantage of being in a large institution. So I had all of these relationships in terms of specialty care, but as a practitioner where my office, where I saw patients was completely separate, just created a community. And I went, guys, come on, I'm going to send people to you and you're going to take them because I send them. And when you send somebody to me, I'm going to take them because you sent them because I trust you're asking the right question of me, right? And so we created the circle of care, which allows me to have a multi-specialty practice, even though I'm a solo practitioner in a large city, probably 200 uh, you know, rheumatologists. So again, it's about just figuring out what you need and then finding the solution wherever it is that you live. I, I'm lucky to have so many people around me. Others maybe have two, three but you can still, there's, there's a phone, there's an email, there's a way to connect. I mean, I'm talking with Priya and Shita all, all over the country um, all the time, right? So we're creating that community that's supportive. And I think we can do that no matter where we land, no matter how we land. Yeah, I would, I would echo that. Um, I think that what I'm hearing is that there's a, a very, um, you know, black and white way of thinking that I don't think is necessarily the way that we have to approach this. Um, in your area where you choose to live, the academic environment there may afford you flexibility, may afford you the things that you want. In another area, it may be the private practice setting that really gives you the flexibility and, oh, look, in this private practice, I have an opportunity to teach or to do research, which I don't have in an academic, in the same area, academic environment. You know, there's, it's just, there's a lot of different flavors to academia. There's lots of different flavors to private practice. Um, on To answer the question about part-time, my very first associate I hired was very clear. She had, uh, she just had a baby. She wanted to be part-time. And I am trying to, uh, you know, grow my practice, build my practice. It's very difficult to do that with just, you know, three days or just however many days a week to really build, but you can. And so we just kind of went to the table and said, what is it you need? You need flexibility. I need some coverage. I had gone years, almost a decade with no coverage on my own. And I said, let's see how we can make it work. And in that scenario, it worked for me because it's what I needed and it was what she needed at the same time when we were able to come up with a creative solution. Um, other things is the whole workforce is changing everywhere. So we yeah. all have to be creative about and flexible about, okay, let's consider part-time. What is this job share thing? How can I make this work for two uh, to physicians who want to share uh, and have coverage, but also flexibility right now, because that's where they are in their lives. Um, remember, there's telemedicine too. There's a lot of ways to kind of remote out some of this. And no matter how anybody feels about it, that's not going anywhere, I don't think. Um, so I think there's a lot of flexibility. And I think there can be that flexibility uh, to maybe an extent in certain academic programs, um, but I certainly see that in private practice where there's opportunities, but you may be interviewing at a private practice program or, or a private practice that is not allowing for that flexibility. And that's a whole different matter altogether. 
Yeah, it's a way to address workforce shortages for real, because, um, I mean, it's projected that there's going to be a lot more patients with rheumatic diseases compared to the amount of rheumatologists that are available to see them. So I think like, you know, there were some employers who are afraid to hire women because they only want to work part time, but I think it might be their loss. When I worked part time, I mean, I was working two and a half days a week, but I actually had billed more than some of our full-time partners because I right. just learned how to be efficient, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So, but I don't know if academics, if they allow for part-time, I mean, do, do your medical centers actually allow any part-time work? You know, so at um, UC Irvine, we do allow it if people want them to be part-time, they just get paid less. And our VA colleagues, actually, we have three women who all are at our VA sister institution that we collaborate with, and they're all part-time. So there are actually three women who work part-time in a shared model that actually works really well. So yeah. it, just, it would depend, but I think Priya's point is very valid. It's not black and white, just academia and private practice, right? Because mm -hmm. the culture of every place you look at is going to be different and what they mm -hmm. offer is different. So you're right, Priya, the culture at one institution is going to really vary to, with another institution, as will private practices. So the most important is probably knowing where you want to be, what makes you thrive, and see if those places actually will give you what you want. And then you have to think about the demand in the area that you are, you know? Yeah. I was yeah. just with a, a, a young rheumatologist who has moved into an area and tagged, she's it. So, you know, suddenly she's getting all of these complex, fascinating cases. And whereas she initially thought maybe I wanted to be a little bit sort of part-time, now it's just like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm just diving in, right? So, so we go in with an idea and then we sort of, we also mold around that. We do the dance um, because life isn't static. Uh, and I think I always go back, you know, when you find opportunity and you find meaningfulness, then uh, satisfaction increases. And so lifestyle shifts. It's, it's, it's to me, that's what work-life balance is. It's, it's balancing life as life uh, shifts and under your feet. It's that, that's really what we do, right? And, and we grow and we thrive and we remodel and we fail sometimes. We get back up and we get on the, right? And, and we do it all over again. So yeah, it's, it's definitely not static. Yeah. And if you're looking for a part-time position, I would say that it's better if you do it in chunks, like two and a half days rather than five half days, because it ends up bleeding past that new hour. And that is definitely not part time. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. So, so my next question that I have for you is um, about like mentorship, self-promotion. Um, Shannon, would you mind sharing the graphics, um, the answers for mentorship? Because I know, you know, women can be mentored to death if they don't get promoted, if they don't have somebody to promote them, they're not going to get anywhere. So I don't know whether or not you all have like people in your lives who have helped you to get to where you are today. And I'm going to throw that out to anybody who wants to answer right now. Yeah, mentoring versus sponsoring, right? Yes, I, I was just going to follow what you said, mentoring to death. There's some truth in that because yeah. we all know this that women are over mentored and under sponsored, right? So mm -hmm. I will say there are quite a few people on this call that are my colleagues, mentors, and sponsors. And I think um, until we realize that mentors are individuals that are there to share knowledge with you, but sponsors are individuals that are there to actually help you, help promote you in your career, um, there's a huge difference. And I think a lot of us have to look at our kind of advisory board, as we would say, and see how many mentors we have, how many sponsors we have, and actively go and seek out the people that we need to actually make it a full board. Yeah, you know, as you said, perfectly said, Sheetala, because the, the sponsor creates the opportunity, opens a door, gives you the handshake, allows you to find additional path, whereas my mentor just sort of tells me, well, you know, you should think about doing it this way. We should think about doing it that way. Yeah. But I don't know how to find the way. And so, mm -hmm. I, you know, I know when we started um, Aware in 2014, one of the first things we said is, how do we, how do we create paths? 
that will allow people to become the thing that they want to become, right? Whether it's a leader or an investigator, a researcher, um, you know, a, a member of a community, it's something that, and we're here speaking as women, women sort of tend to do this, you know, the collective um, uh, collection, I say the 50 shades of purple, not gray, always go with purple. <laughs> but it's the idea that sometimes I have to fight to open a door because I know that that door being open will help Priya. Yes. Or I have the opportunity um, that I don't need to take advantage of, but I can hand it to somebody and say, this is the person that would, this would be a great opportunity for this person. Here's her email, here's her cell phone. Better yet, let me connect you on text. <laughs> Right, so that you actually help. And that for me is what sponsorship did. I experienced this when I sort of years back started like looking at why are we not being paid uh, at parity? We're doing the same work. I'm sorry, more qualified. Why is that the case? And, you know, talk and talk and talk. It was my male colleagues who said, wait a second, we're going to stand up in this and, and, and insist on parity or we're out of the game. Right. So, that is sponsorship. That is taking on the risk to create an opportunity for somebody else. Uh, and I think we, we definitely need, but this is an interesting uh, metric you have up here, Catherine. Yeah, so um, what it shows is that basically almost 60% um, of people have not had like a supervisor or a chief to help advance their career, which to me is a sad statement. Um, and then if you were to look at where they get their career mentoring, the majority of people get it during fellowship training, um, as well as in academic practice. In private practice, um, it's not very common to be mentored. So Priya, do you wanna comment on that about private practice and mentoring? Do you think this is just like a one-off sampling error or do you think that this is true? I think, you know, it's, uh, what do we think of when we think of mentoring? I think is is a is an important thing that, that you know, both uh, Sheetal and, and Grace have, have talked about. We think of advisors as mentors. Uh, we have this notion that, you know, since I'm in a fellowship and this is the my advisor, they're mentoring me and so on. But as they both have very eloquently said, it's about that person who spotlights you, who sponsors you and says, I see something available here for you and I come with me, let's go. And I've had um, amazing mentors in the private sector. I mean, I uh, joined the FSR board because of fantastic mentors like uh, Dr. Mira Oza, Dr. Bob Levin, um, you know, and they said, you would be great for this. Just come on, let's have you, let's have you do this. And, and I said, whoa, 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 let, tell me what it's about. Well, you know, what do I need to, to know? And that's someone who's, um, you know, guiding you, telling you what the opportunities are, and then also sponsoring you and, and showing you how you can actually realize that opportunity and, and, and make it yours. So I don't, I think that we, we think about it in a very specific way um, that, you know, a mentor has to be somebody with, you know, certain credentials after their name and professor has to be one of them. And they're going to take you along this particular track of, of, um, of, of leadership, but not only do mentors and sponsors come uh, in different forms uh, into your life, but so do opportunities to lead and opportunities to advance in your career um, or to uh, either create more revenue or to be able to teach or do research or do different things that you want to do. So there's different, I, I think, opportunities. And, and I wouldn't be here without the mentorship that I've had. Um, both in, in academic for my fellowship and, and academia to uh, what I've experienced in the private sector. I mean, Grace, she thought they're sponsors and mentors. They're my greatest cheerleader. Um, before, before I forget, there was this great article that I read in one of these um, magazines about having, you know, three or four different types of friends. Like, you know, when you have a friend group and one of them that stuck with me all the time is you have to have a cheerleader. You need a friend in your group who is your cheerleader? Who is going to go out on a limb and say, you know what, you're terrific, this person's great, and, and, and I know this person, I can vouch for them. 
Yeah. And and here's yeah. what they, we have to do is we have to remembering that sponsorship occurs in certain spaces. And I remember thinking, you know, I grew up with two brothers. I was the goalkeeper on the soccer. You know, I was the goalie. Um, and so I sort of grew up in this culture of um, the team, the, the the gang sort of doing all of these things. And I remember thinking, you know, the guys go to the bar after, you know, we could have had a really hard day as residents. Let's just grab. It's a 15 minute and when I went into practice, I said to my friend who was a pulmonary critical care, I said, we're gonna create our own after work, stop at the bar as we're going home to our kid moment. Um, it's the golf course moment. You can name all these spaces in which sponsorship occurs. And so part of it is how do we create those spaces for, for the people who need them um, in a way that they will you know, want to be there so that we can create sponsorship. And I think that's something that as a community, not just women, but women and men, um, that we do this. We have to create those spaces so that everybody gets in and everybody can have the opportunity. So we actually asked a question and Shannon, if you'll share slide six on whether or not um, people would prefer a certain gender to be their leader, to be their sponsor, to be their mentor. And this is actually very interesting here. So of all the respondents, you know, they really don't care whether it's a man or a woman. But if you were to look specifically at women, there's about a quarter of women who would prefer to have a female um, sponsor or division director or practice director. What do you think? I mean, in academic practice, do you think that would be better to have a female to to lead and, you know, be the chairman of rheumatology? Do you think that this person is more likely to be more sympathetic to women or do you think there's going to be lateral aggression or what do you think? Um, Dr. Danella, will you answer that question? Yeah, sure. Um, I can try. Uh, so I think the, the, it, it's, I think women um, and maybe some men too, but I, I cannot really speak for them, um, uh, can have different types of discussions, right? So you may feel more comfortable um, talking to somebody that uh, looks more like you uh, than with uh, somebody that doesn't look like you. So I remember a discussion with one of my male colleagues in which I was trying to ask for advice about um, you know, how you deal with life work balance with children growing up and things like that. And he was kind of stunned. He didn't know what to say to that because, you know, we have to also remember that for a long time, um, you know, behind every successful man was a really strong woman, right? So, you know, the, the experiences were different. Things are changing and have definitely changed over the last 20 years. Um, but but there's still, uh, there's it, it, just life experiences um, are uh, different. I also think that, you know, like with my, my own mentees, you know, I, I get a lot of questions, different questions that I thought about asking people around me. Um, and, you know, I've had both men and women as, as mentors. Um, but I think that um, it's, uh, it's just the connection that gets created between women sometimes is just conducive to, uh, to discussions that otherwise may, may feel uncomfortable. I have a point about the, 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 the way I, I, I think of mentors and, and uh, sponsors is that the mentors are the people that guide you, but the sponsor is the person who actually gives you a key that matches, is the matchmaking person, um, is, is the person that you know, selects you uh, outside other possibilities for a particular role or particular um, um, opportunity. And I think that's, that's really important. And one thing we didn't bring up is the fact that there's just, it's not only senior mentorship, there is peer mentorship. And I actually got a lot from people um, that were the, 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 uh, the same level in, in my, in, in, in the career as I was in trying to understand, you know, how they went through difficult situations and they helped me along. So I wanted to, to make that point. Yeah. And it's, you know, okay. So you can have a sponsor, you can have a mentor, but if that person doesn't say yes to that opportunity, that's also not going to be helpful either. And I actually did a room thoughts on about like the opportunity to say yes, because it could be somebody who's like, Hey, will you give a lecture? So if you give a lecture and you say yes, then yes, that's going to open doors to more lectures. 
or like I asked and invited all of you ladies, will you come on my panel tonight? And now we have this wonderful session. You know, it's, but it's about also being able to say yes when you think it's a lot of work mm -hmm. or whatever. It's still taking that time and say, yes, I think this is important. So that's that's a huge point. And Dr. Yeah, and I think Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I think Dr. Desai was about to say something. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think uh, answering your question from my perspective, is a female division director or a male division director better? I would say that's hard to say because there's characteristics of both that can be amazing. What threw me off is looking at the percentages of women in rheumatology and then the percentages of women that were division directors across the country just didn't match the huge numbers of women that had entered our specialty. And that's not just rheumatology, that's medicine all across the board. We're seeing this feminization that is happening across medicine. So I think it's important that our levels of leadership actually reflect the numbers of women that have actually entered into the medical workforce, rheumatology being one that we're almost at parity. We're almost at 50% rheumatologists practicing are female and 50% are male. And so, you know, like Maria was saying, it's important that you have a sufficient number of women in leadership that understand the obstacles women face, the care requirements that they might have, and that have gone through that journey with childcare and breastfeeding. Um, because if only if you've been through it, will you actually understand the needs that the women, you know, um, are challenged with. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, we have to have a bit more on our plates as a woman. I mean, not just about our jobs, but also our home life. So that brings us to our next question, which is going to be a little bit of a bomb in here is, have you experienced gender equity and inequity, I should say? And Shannon, will you put up this slide while we talk about this? Um, I know, Grace, you've you've probably experienced not just gender inequity, but also racial inequity. And because I've experienced that too. Yeah, you know, the, the number of times that I was told, oh my God, you're amazingly articulate. Or um, I don't know any other black person like you, or you really are a woman. <laughs> All of those are racialized and, um, um, you know, sort of various levels of microaggression. We can talk about that another time. But my response always was, you need to broaden your pool. Everybody I know is exactly like me, right? But there, there are these comments that are sometimes made um, that are sort of, you know, sort of cloaked in um, a little bit of, I'm complimenting you, but it's not. Um, because why are you surprised that I'm articulate? I speak the Queen's English, you know? Why are you surprised that I'm a woman? I've always, you know, or however I identify. Um, and so it, it sneaks in. I remember being told once that I was too pretty to be a doctor. I should go and be a model. And this was my attending physician, you know, as a trainee. And, and just thinking, how silly of you. <laughs> but this happens all the time. It happens all the time. It happens uh, every day. It happens from patients to providers, vice versa. It happens from colleagues, from uh, support staff, um, because you're not supposed to be my boss because you're a woman. I don't have to listen to you because you're a woman. Well, okay, you're going to have to listen to me because I'm a woman. You know, there, there are ways that we shift that. So these things, um, you know, happen. And the, the, the issue sometimes, and I've, I've held discussions like this panel discussions around the world where people tell me no there is nothing and then you go well have you ever heard this and it's like oh my god i didn't realize it um but so there's there's all of this sort of um coming to awareness that occurs and there is you know i'm not saying this is men against women there are women who also exert bias and there is the opposite men biased against women women biased against men. So, you know, bias is something that we all have been marinated in. We've, we've grown up in, you know, you're pink, I'm blue, you're this, I'm that, right? And I think it's just important that we're all aware of it. And we um, take a stand to say, we're going to do something about it so that we create equity for ourselves and for all of those who follow us. I think that's critically important. It changes outcomes. It helps us practice differently because of our sort of emotional, empathic understanding and awareness of 
you're not like me, but you matter. And so I'm going to treat you in a way that's respectful and equitable. So this is sort of a very charged. It's almost like let's let's have a little bit of an activity and then ask this question again and see how the numbers change, right? So right, right. So yeah, and we did ask this question um, of our respondents, and you know they said that only a quarter. If you looked at all respondents, only about a quarter experienced gender inequity. But if you were to ask women, and if you divide this up, women actually half of us. Um, have experienced gender inequity. And I, to me, that's not surprising. And I'm pretty sure that all of you, um, like Dr. Reddy, Dr. Desai, Dr. Danila, also probably have experienced, you know, somewhat of um, uncomfortable situations, would you say? Yeah, and I, I would <laughs> say that's what, yeah, it keeps me in my role as chief. I mean, so we've got to realize gender inequity ex exists all across the country, even outside of medicine. But I think for a lot of us that are not naive, but are aspirational, we would think that in STEM fields like medicine, there shouldn't be gender inequity because we should be ahead of the game. We should understand um, that that is not appropriate, but gender inequity is definitely in medicine as much as it is all across the country. And so I think for a lot of us, we want to help, you know, through aware and through, you know, working at academic institutions and private practice and collaborations, we really want to help promote all of our colleagues to a more equitable workforce. I mean, I know that's what keeps me as chief is not having enough females in leadership where I'm at, my goal is to increase females in these positions over the next five years, right? So we definitely need to help one another, but we need to be aware that gender, gender inequity is quite prevalent all over our communities, but unfortunately in medicine as well. And, and then yeah. we look at stacked inequities, right? Right. Where So it's one thing that you're yes. identified as female, but now what if you're also um, uh, of African ancestry, or if you're an immigrant of African ancestry and you sort of start to stack it, right? And I think of um, uh, Dr. Nilo, your path, you know, with the, the series of layered hurdles, it's the same thing that then translates into inequity in compensation, wage compensation, inequity in promotion, inequity in who's put on the platform, inequity in who's given the sponsorship, who, who has a door open for them. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be intentional. We all collectively, not just uh, those of us mm -hmm. here on the panel, but however we identify, we have to be intentional about making it equal for everyone because it's gonna matter to somebody that you care about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure, I, right? think, I think that inequity will exist as long as there is lack of representation and lack of representation in leadership specifically. And so that's where the sponsor, the mentor comes to play to give you that key, as Dr. Dylan said very eloquently, you know, gives you the key and says, here's how you open the door. But I think it's also important for those of us who get to the door, like the you said, door. Catherine, is to say yes and say, you know what, mm -hmm. I'm going to walk through that door and I'm going to make it easier. Like when Grace does it, she makes it easier for me for she thought, you know, we've got to make it easier for for the rest of us and those that come after us. Yeah, I don't know if you had a chance to read Dr. Nicola Dalbeth's blog. Oh my God, it's it's about her story. And then it's about like, you know, what they're doing over in Australia and New Zealand so that, you know, they can have equity in men and fem and women rheumatologists. So like for instance, New Zealand, they are sponsoring a parental grant to allow new parents who have children under the age of two so that they're the the rheumatologist the parent can actually attend the meetings you know because they know that having a child is very difficult i mean yes the acr is is providing babysitting services the other thing is that in australia they made it mandatory that if if there's a conference you have to invite equal numbers of men and women or else that conference will not occur you know, so I, I think this is something that we need to really address as a group. Um, and I mean, like, yes, Grace, you have a very unique position being AWARE's president too, too. And yeah. you've been doing so much for, for like highlighting women in rheumatology and where our position are. So, you know, I, hats off to you and thank you. Yeah, and you know, putting women on the platform. It's one thing to talk mm -hmm. about it, but if you have the opportunity to put her on the platform, put her on the platform. I mean, we make and, and shape 
who our future leaders are. We just saw this happen in Brazil. When we were there three years ago, it was less than 20% of women in leadership uh, on the platform. The, the, the um, national meeting was 99%, 95% male. I went back last year, they're now 50-50 because they made a decision to make it so. Um, without somebody sort of you know, saying by law, this is it. Um, we made a decision and we were intentional about it. Um, and now, you know, I remember being in Australia a few years back when we were there. And, and yes, we would give women the chance to take time off to have kids. But when they come back, what do we do? Do we create a path for them to get back into the flow, to have a track towards leadership, or do we sideline? So sometimes, you know, we have the best of intentions. But if we don't footprint the process, as I say, all the way through to where do you want her to end? Where is she going to land? Um, then we end up still just sort of shifting the flavor of inequity. But it's something that, you know, the association, the purple ladies, we are passionate about. It's sort of the core uh, about what happens. And, you know, we know that as we look at, at our population shift, we see younger people coming in um, and our more senior uh, colleagues retiring. And looking at the diversity on this panel, this is what's coming in with the younger people. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm going to call myself younger. <laughs> Maybe I'm not young. <laughs> I'm yeah, youngish, right? But you yeah. see that the diversity comes in when you look at who's coming in. And we need to have a, a leadership that reflects the diversity that we all are. I mean, I'm looking here, I'm seeing five different ancestries. Um, yeah, one, there's one Indian who can haggle and one who can't. So you're two different <laughs> ancestors. <laughs> Those are two different tribes, you know? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you all for participating in this panel. I mean, I could be talking to y'all until midnight. Seriously, we need to all get together at some point and have a glass of wine. So I want to thank our audience for tuning in. I want to remind you next week, we have the town hall meeting, which we are going to summarize all our Tuesday night rheumatology um, panels that we've had discussed. We want to point out what's important. Um, we want to be able to provide a blueprint so that our association, our leadership will listen to us and, and pave the way, as Dr. Wright had said. So tune in next week. Thank you, BMS and BNOW, for providing the sponsorship to make this happen. Have a good night. Have a good night. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.